So we're going to be uh, in Genesis chapter 47, if you want to get that ready to go. Before we read this, uh, just want to say how good it is to be with you this morning and uh, praying this morning in, in preparation for coming to be with you and worship together and be in God's Word together. Uh, just, uh, you know, it's always on Sunday mornings there's the desire for God to be magnified and called upon and worshipped and all those things. Um, in particular this morning, I uh, just uh, felt so strongly the desire for God to be pleased with what, uh, with what we come here and do this morning, to what He sees in us, what He hears from us, uh, the state of our hearts, our attitudes, our desires this morning, that He would be pleased would be just the richest, highest goal that we could have and I uh, want to just invite you to share that goal this morning, that the Lord Himself would be pleased, not just that we would come and be pleased with this morning. Wow, that, was, that seemed like a good service, or uh, uh, I felt something this morning, or, or I enjoyed something this morning, but that the highest desire we would have this morning is that God would be pleased, that, that He would be honored and glorified and be satisfied with our worship and, uh, and our hearts this morning, but we need Him for that, don't we? We, we don't all drag ourselves in here with, with desires and motives and plans that are necessarily uh, pure before the Lord. Uh, and I think a lot of times that's because we come here out of tradition or out of ritual uh, or just out of habit, uh, kind of come mindlessly to church because that's just what's done, Right? Uh, and praise God that it's our tradition to gather together uh, on the morning of the first day of the week and worship God, uh, but let's not do it out of ritual, let's do it out of worship and to please Him. So uh, let's come to, to God's Word with that attitude for His sake. So Genesis chapter 47 is where we are, and we're going to read chapters 47 and 48 this morning. Uh, and just as we normally do, I'll read it out loud if you would follow along. And then once we have read these scriptures out loud, we're going to stop and pray and ask the Lord for his help for this particular part of our worship this morning that we would learn from him, really be taught by him. So Genesis chapters 47 and 48, let's read. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers, with their flocks and herds and all that they possess, have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land. For there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. 
Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph bought, uh, brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for their horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh, and give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field. And as for food, you yourselves, sorry, as, for, uh, as food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. And they said, we have saved our, you have saved our lives. May it please, my Lord, we will be his servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it, and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt seventeen years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were one hundred forty-seven years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. 
Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed, or his staff. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples, and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in the inheritance. As for me, when I came from Paddan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, These are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my father Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. 
Thank you that you have inspired it, that you've preserved it for us. Thank you, Lord, that it's useful for correcting and teaching and rebuking and training in righteousness, that it's breathed out by you to accomplish your purposes. Thank you, Lord, that your word never returns to you void, but it always accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it out. Thank you for sending these words to us this morning. Would you please accomplish your purposes? Bear fruit. Transform us. Change our hearts. Allow us to know you more this morning. To worship you more truthfully, more honestly, more sincerely, more passionately. As you deserve, God. You deserve it from us. Holy Spirit of God, will you please yourself personally teach us this morning by your own power, by your own wisdom. Help us to learn from you. Open our hearts, please. Let us receive truth from you that would cause us to become more like Christ, to have more pure desires to see you glorified. We love you, God. We thank you for being with us, for hearing us, being attentive to our prayers. And we have confidence that our request to learn from you, to learn from your spirit, from your word this morning, is your will. So we ask believing that you're saying yes. And we anticipate great things from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so Genesis chapter 47 and 48 uh, here we see the purpose of God uh, that he had for Joseph is becoming reality in chapter 47. Remember that uh, when Joseph encountered his brothers again, when they made their way to Egypt because the famine was so severe and they were starving, uh, they came to Egypt and they found Joseph there, but they didn't recognize him. They didn't know that it was Joseph, their brother that they had so many years before sold into slavery. They didn't know that he had ended up in Egypt. They didn't know his life in Potiphar's house, his life in prison, his life becoming great in the house of Pharaoh, even second in command over all of Egypt. No idea that any of this had taken place. And when Joseph revealed himself to them, helping them, being gracious to them, forgiving them, and seeking to uh, be a blessing to them, to uh, save them from this famine, you remember that Joseph told them, don't be angry with yourselves over what you've done because it was not you who sent me here to Egypt, but it was God. God was sending me before you so that you would be saved from this famine. And Joseph was interpreting all of his pain and all of his suffering, his loneliness, his isolation from his family, from the land that God has given to Israel, interpreting all of his pain and suffering through the sovereign will of God, realizing that it was God working through his suffering for the good of God's name, for the good of Joseph and his family and the nation of Israel for the good of God's purposes to bring about salvation. Not only salvation from a famine, but salvation from the penalty of our sin. Joseph realizes all this and he tells his brothers, this was God's will that I would be here. 
And so you see now that this is coming into fruition. It's becoming the reality. Everything that God meant to do by sending Joseph ahead of them, he's now accomplishing. Joseph had prepared his brothers and his father. When you go in to see Pharaoh, he's waiting for you. Tell them, hey, we're shepherds, we tend flocks, and we're just looking for a place to tend our flocks. Just tell Pharaoh that because Egyptians hate flock keepers, they hate shepherds, and they're going to want to send you to some land on the outskirts and isolate you so that you won't be among all the people, and by doing this, we'll receive land where we can live and thrive in Egypt. We can be a distinct nation still, even as we're here in this exile. Apparently, the brothers, you know, kind of took heed to this, and they quoted what Joseph told them to, but they ended up going beyond that. They said to Pharaoh, we've come to sojourn in the land, for there's no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan, and now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. They weren't supposed to say that. Goshen was the best land in all of Egypt, and Joseph was trying to prepare Pharaoh and kind of steer Pharaoh. Listen, they're already in Goshen. They're shepherds. Just let them stay out there. They're already there, but they came requesting Goshen. But because God's favor was on Joseph and was on Israel for his own purposes, Pharaoh just says, yeah, take it. The land of Egypt is before you. Take the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And not only that, but he says, if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. He's even giving them jobs. The best of the land, the best jobs, a secure income, and a livelihood in Egypt. And then Joseph brings in Jacob, his father. And Jacob now, 130 years old, is standing before Pharaoh, and you can imagine the scene. It says here, Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh, because Jacob is super old, right? And somebody's got to, like, stand him up at this point and kind of prop him up, leaning on his staff, this weathered old shepherd from the land of Canaan, standing before the royal court of Egypt and all of their pomp and all of their royalty and all these things. Jacob stands before him, and he has no time for all of the pomp, no time for all of the ritual. He, he pronounces some blessing on Pharaoh, which is probably something like, long live the king, you know, that was traditional to say when you encountered a king, some kind of blessing like that. And maybe that's why Pharaoh asked Jacob right out of the gate, well, speaking of living long, how old are you? Obviously, a really old man. Apparently, in, in ancient Egypt, to live to 110, 110 was like, wow, that's the goal. If you've lived to 110, you've lived a long, full, blessed life. Now, here's Jacob, 130, two decades beyond the wildest dream of any Egyptian. But then what does Jacob say? He doesn't try to kind of pander and and kowtow and all these things, he says, look, I'm 130 years old. Few and evil have been the days of my life. My sojourning has been hard. All the times that he suffered, either because of his own sin or because somebody else's, chased down, hunted by his older brother Esau, suffering under Laban, who had tricked him into working all these extra years so that he could have the wife that he wanted, and then the wife that he wanted died. 
too young. And then his son Joseph being separated from him for so many years, thinking he's dead, wishing he was dead himself. He had lived a lot of years, but Jacob had lived a lot of hard years. And at this point, he's past all of the kind of pleasantries, and he just tells Pharaoh straight up, I've lived a long, hard life, but I haven't lived as long as my father's. They're more blessed than I am. They had more joy than I did. You can almost hear it in his voice. Verse 10, Jacob blesses Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt and the best of the land and the land of Ramses, as it later came to be known, as Pharaoh had commanded. Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. You go on to see Joseph's, again, administrative mastery as he's leading the entire nation of Egypt with his family in mind, with the purposes of God in mind. He's engineering this whole system for the well-being of the people, knowing that his own family in the land of Goshen is prospering greatly from this and becoming a great multitude, a great nation out here on the outskirts of town, just quietly becoming this massive sea of people under the blessing of God. The rest of the land is suffering. They keep coming, and he's also benefiting Pharaoh. The entire nation of, Israel, of Egypt became servants of Pharaoh, and all of their land became Pharaoh's. So Pharaoh, by blessing Joseph and blessing Israel, was blessed himself. Then we come to chapter 48. Sorry, just before chapter 48 and 47, starting in verse 29. When the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh, which was the, in the ancient world this way of making like a solemn promise. placing. I'm thinking of, of reinstituting this, if you guys are interested. I just think it's really... Amen. Those are strong thighs, brother. Place your hand under my thigh and promise to me to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt. This is the promise that he wants Joseph to make to him. Look, you're in charge. You're in charge around here. People go where you say go. They do what you say to do. Make a promise to me that you will bury me with my fathers. You remember that Abraham had bought that piece of land, Machpelah, where he buried his wife, Sarah, when she died. And it was the only possession that he had in all the land of Canaan, a burial plot, a cave. And Abraham himself was buried there with Sarah. And then Isaac was buried there with Abraham and Sarah. And now Jacob wants to be buried there. But it wasn't just because it's the family plot, it's, tra it's the tradition. It was by faith in the promises of God that he would give them the land of Canaan as an inheritance that they wanted their bones buried there. I want my bones there because I believe that is our land by the edict of God. And I want my bones to be with my people. It's trusting in the future promises of God to give them 
the promised land. Joseph says, I will do as you've said. He said, swear to me, and he swore to him. And then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed, or as Hebrews 11 says, on the head of his staff, worshiping God. Because God had granted it to him to receive this promise of being buried in the promised land. Then chapter 48. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So now remember, Joseph didn't come here seeking blessing for his sons. He came here because he knew his father was going to die. And he just wanted to spend some time with him. He wanted to bring his two sons with him so that they could spend some time with their grandfather before he died. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Notice there that Manasseh is named first. He's the oldest, the firstborn. And it was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, remember when he had this vision of God appearing to him and making promises to him, God said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make, you, make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. So he's reminding Joseph now of the promises that God has made to make him a great nation, to give him this land, and that this is an everlasting possession. And now your two sons, he says to Joseph, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. A different time, right? He says, they are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine. Now you notice their names are switched. Manasseh's named second. We're being tipped off here about what's about to happen. As Reuben and Simeon are, these are his two oldest. Now he's speaking about Joseph's two oldest, but switching their names, he begins to speak about what's going to come from them. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They, Ephraim and Manasseh, shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. Sorry, uh, your other sons shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Paddan, that is Paddan Aram, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Remember, he's nearly blind at this point with old age. Joseph said to his father, They're my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. So is this matter of first importance, having received apparently some prophetic kind of understanding from the Lord, Jacob wants to bless Ephraim and Manasseh. He's already allowed Joseph to take this position of preeminence, even over Reuben, his firstborn. Remember, there was strife with Reuben. Reuben had tried to overtake Jacob by taking one of his wives and sleeping with her to try to gain preeminence in the house, regain standing in the house. And you'll hear later in chapter 49 how Jacob deals with that. So now Joseph has become the greatest of the sons of Jacob, and Jacob is turning 
and in order to bless Joseph's sons and continue this, this legacy of promise that God has been establishing and seeing through this family line, he begins to bless Ephraim and Manasseh. But God surprised Joseph. He had already prepared Jacob for this. You can hear it happening. When, when Jacob begins to speak, he's got this kind of certain knowledge about the future. And, and even as Joseph struggles with it and tries to, oh, Dad, listen, you, what, what are you doing? Move your hand. I, pos- I put them all in place. Remember, he's a master administrator. He has already thought everything out. He takes the boys off of Jacob's knees. He backs them up. He organizes them, and then he puts them back in front of Jacob in order of their blessing. The right hand for the firstborn, the left hand for the secondborn. Right hand for the greater and the greater blessing. Left hand for the lesser and the lesser blessing. So when Jacob's hands cross... In a very calculated way. Who, who would do that? Why? Especially when you're so old. Why would you go to the extra effort? Right? I had to hurt those old joints. He crosses his hands in this peculiar way. And Joseph is frustrated at it. He's displeased by it. But you can see Jacob already knows something that Joseph doesn't know. I know, my son, I know. There's this knowledge that he's already been granted by the Lord. Jacob summons his strength, sits up in bed, addresses Joseph and his two sons, his eyesight failing with old age. He needs Joseph to even clarify who it is he's looking at. It's Ephraim and Manasseh. He gives them some grandpa love, embraces them, kisses them, has the two boys stand in front of them. Joseph arranges everything just perfectly according to tradition. But as we know about God by now, he is no slave to tradition, is he? He's no slave to expectation, to human will, human plans. God is absolutely happy to violate and frustrate all human wisdom and plans in order to bring about his own purposes. Jacob knew very well that God was willing to violate cultural customs, expectations in order to accomplish his plans. You remember that Jacob, the younger brother of Esau, received the blessing of the firstborn. Yes, he lied to his father in order to get it, but the sovereign God had ordained that Jacob would receive that blessing, and so he did. And he became the chosen one through whom God was going to continue to build this nation of promise. This thread through human history through which God was going to bring about salvation. Joseph was the 11th of 12 sons and he became the preeminent. Now Ephraim is the second born, but he's going to receive the blessing of the firstborn. This promise to become a great nation. And it was true, it came true. As they were entering the promised land, Ephraim, his tribe, become a great multitude in the land of Canaan. Now later, God rejected the tribe of Ephraim because of their unfaithfulness, and he established Judah as the tribe of promise through which the Savior would come. But God was always doing this, and he continued to do this. You remember much later on, 
400 years later when Israel is this great nation, but they're suffering under a harsh, uncaring Pharaoh who's forgotten all about Joseph. They've become slaves in the land of Egypt. Who was it that God raised up to deliver his people from Egypt? A stuttering murderer named Moses. A coward who had bailed and ran out into the wilderness and was tending flocks. Just found himself on a mountain one day looking at a curious burning bush that just wouldn't die. The voice of God coming out of him, choosing him, setting him apart for a purpose. He was afraid, uncertain, no confidence in himself, forgotten by Egypt. It was Moses who was chosen to lead Israel out of Egypt. And then as, Egypt, uh, sorry, as Israel came into the promised land again and they possessed it and owned it, so many years later, you remember they were desperate for a king. They were looking at all the nations around them and they saw these mighty kings these warrior kings who were protecting their people and expanding their kingdoms. And Israel said, we need a king. God, give us a king. He said, I don't think you want a king. No, 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 give us a king. He says, all right, who do you want then? If you demand a king, who do you want? Who do they choose? They choose Saul. Why do they choose Saul? Because he's the tallest. He's the strongest. They choose Saul, the obvious choice, the the powerful man, the mighty man of war. How did that turn out? It went really badly for them. So God, rescuing them from the disaster of Saul's kingship, who does God choose to be king over Israel? The youngest brother, the dude who's still out in the fields. He didn't even show up for the meeting when they're going to anoint a king. Little David. Now, we say little David, he, he also was like kind of a stud, All right, but nobody knew that at the time. The youngest brother, the least expected, a shepherd boy out in the fields. But it was a shepherd boy of the tribe of Judah. And then again, so many years later, who was it from the tribe of Judah that arose and became a savior for the people? The least expected. No, nobody was looking to God for a young man from Nazareth to stand up and be Savior. What did they want? Again, their eyes are looking at the obvious choice, the man of power, the man of war. They wanted someone to deliver them from Rome. They wanted a warrior. They wanted someone who would take up a sword, who would defend Israel as a nation, establish them again as an independent people. But Jesus was completely uninterested in that, wasn't he? Why were they so frustrated with Jesus all the time? Why were the Pharisees so annoyed at him, annoyed that anyone would follow him, annoyed that anyone would listen to him? They didn't understand God, and that's why they didn't recognize him when, they, when he showed up. Like John says in the first chapter of his gospel, he was among his own people, but they didn't recognize him. Why didn't they recognize him? Because you don't recognize someone you don't know. 
They didn't realize that from all the way back to the earliest of their history as a nation, God was always choosing the lesser. God was always choosing the least expected, the one that no one would choose, no, the one that anyone would pick last for a game of kickball. That's who He always raises up. So He comes born in Bethlehem to a poor family under suspicion of immorality. And then growing up in Egypt, growing up in Nazareth, and finally coming onto the scene as a 30-year-old man who's kind of, isn't this just the son of Joseph the carpenter? Who is this guy? He doesn't say anything about, and the only time we, we mention Rome and he responds is when he says, hey, give the money to Caesar whose picture's on the coin, he can have it. Where are the swords drawn? He's not mounted on a horse ready to attack. He's not secretly gathering troops together so that we can take back the city by force. He just keeps talking about our hearts, talking about our worship, talking about our integrity, our faith. God was always choosing the least expected, the one overlooked, the one who's weaker in appearance. You remember how uh, Isaiah prophesied about Jesus, that there was nothing in his appearance that we should esteem him or admire him. Nothing about Jesus that you would look at him and go, that's the guy. If anyone's going to deliver us, it's got to be him. He was just another guy walking down the street. If you're looking with eyes of the flesh, when your eyes are opened by the Spirit, you see the living God walking on earth, declaring the gospel of God, the salvation of God for sinners. Not salvation from Rome's oppression. Salvation from the oppression of your own sinfulness. A greater salvation. And this thread always continues. It's, it's always been there. You see it in Genesis, this thread running throughout, God doing the unexpected, choosing the least, using the foolish to shame the wise, using the weak to shame the strong. You always see it, even in the person of Jesus Christ, coming to do the greatest work God would ever do in the world. He doesn't break script. He doesn't break character. God is always God. He's always doing what God does. Even at the most important, critical moment, Jesus comes humbly. Jesus comes and dies on a cross, a sinner's death, to bring about salvation, to express the power of God. He came in weakness and in shame, in humility. That's why they didn't recognize Jesus, because they didn't know God. They didn't know His character, His nature, His tendencies. They were operating in the flesh. God's always defying our wisdom. This thread doesn't end with Jesus either. It begins way back here with Abraham, or even sooner than that, you could make a case, through Isaac, through Jacob, through Ephraim continues on throughout all of Israel's history and in the person of Christ, and now in those who are known as the people of Christ. It continues still. 
What you're seeing here is how, how Joseph is caught off guard. This is unexpected. Hey, this isn't what was supposed to happen. This isn't the way I calculated it and planned it. When I look with my natural eyes, when I go according to custom and culture, you've got to uncross your hands. This is still happening now in our lives. And maybe even as I speak about God's character, God's nature, God's will, God's willingness, even His devotion to violating your expectations, there could be some things coming up in you. You've made some plans that you feel really frustrated about have not come to fruition. You had some other plans that that you were really interested in and you thought were really good for you, for your family, even for the name of God, and yet God is not interested in establishing those plans. He's got other plans. He's doing something else. Maybe you don't even know what that something else is. Maybe you feel like you're languishing in a famine. There is no plan. God's left me. He's forgotten me. Never the case. He's just working out a plan that wasn't yours. He's interested in establishing things that you're not interested in establishing. And they're always good, and they're always glorious, and they're always good for you. If you're willing to look with spiritual eyes and not the natural eyes and use human wisdom, but if you would use God's wisdom and interpret your pain and your suffering and your plans through God's word, God's truth, God's revealed character and nature, then you would see God is doing something good. I have to adjust. I have to adjust. It's true for us We're living it out that this is who God is. This is what God does. I want to put in front of you 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and I'm going to ask you to turn there because it's a little bit longer passage. We're going to read it together. And I hope you'll see through this that what God was doing when He revealed truth to Jacob and pronounced these blessings for Ephraim that He had done so many times before, violating expectations, throwing curveballs at his people. I hope you'll see through this that you are very much a part of what God is continuing to do. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 18. Here's Paul speaking to the church in Corinth. For the word of the cross is folly, that is foolishness, looks like error to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I'm going to read that again. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart, I will frustrate, I will overcome. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through their own wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, 
the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now, we know that there is no foolishness and there is no weakness in God. He's speaking metaphorically. If there was any, wisdom, if there was any lack of wisdom, any foolishness in God, any weakness in God, it would be far beyond the strength and the wisdom of any human being. And the wisdom of God and the power of God is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It defies human wisdom. It's not the strength that humanity is looking for. That's why it's so easy to reject Jesus by the world. It's so easy to look at him as just some guy who showed up in the first century if you can prove he existed, which you can. He's just some guy who lived, he was a nut job, he said some stuff, he gained a following, he was killed by Rome, just like so many other nut jobs. And now he's passed on and he's just a note in the margin of history. Easy to dismiss, right? Easy to dismiss. But you know there's going to come a day when Jesus will not be easy to dismiss. When he will be revealed in all of his wisdom and power in a way that even the world can understand. When the sky splits open and every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, whatever that even means, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why? Because it will be undeniable then. Undeniable. But as it stands, with eyes of the flesh and a heart turned against God, Jesus in His humility, this gospel of weakness, of sacrifice, of forgiveness is easy to dismiss, but it won't always be that way. This is the gospel of God, the power and the wisdom of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, always defying expectation, always accomplishing His purposes in a way that's unexpected by the world, by the natural mind. And this affects who we are as people. As the people of God, we take on the character of God. We take on this desire of God to defy wisdom of the world, to express God's power through humility. We take on this characteristic of God. Look at verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. What is it about a Christian person that's so lowly, that's so weak, that's so despised? Is it not that we've believed the gospel and the gospel says of us that we are sinners unable to save ourselves? We've recognized our weakness. We've recognized our humility. There's nothing in me that is admirable before a holy God. Nothing worth looking at and thinking, God, God would think He needs Nothing that God would desire. 
But God in His graciousness and His mercy credits to me the righteousness of Christ and makes me worthy of a relationship with Him. Nothing in myself, everything in Christ. What kind of foolish, weak person is willing to stake their entire life upon a promise that has nothing to do with anything found in themselves, only something rooted in another person, only the Christian. No wonder we're so despised, so looked down upon, so lowly in the world, so easily rejected and dismissed, because our lives depend on someone else. Where the world is telling you, you gain your reputation, you gain your wisdom and your stature and your strength, your reputation, by what you go and grab for yourself. And we say, all I was grabbing for myself was judgment and death. But Christ grabbed for me life, life eternal, life beyond this world, life that, life that glorifies God and not self. We take on this characteristic, we take on this identity God chose us. We didn't choose Him. God chose the humble, the weak, the rejected. God chose what's low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to shame the things that are. And why? Why has God always been doing this? Why did God put it in the heart of Jacob to bless Ephraim with his right hand rather than Manasseh? Why did God choose David? Why did God choose to come as a humble servant born in Bethlehem? Why did God choose any of us? Why does he make his gospel a gospel of the weak, a gospel of humility, a gospel of weakness? Verse 29 so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God knows that only God is wise. God knows that only God is strong. God knows that every human being is needy and broken and dependent on Him. And in order to leave no room for false boasting, because God deals in truth, God leaves us in a position of need, of humility. Not a humility that's even chosen, a humility that is just true. If you need another person, you're humbled. Whether you want to be or not, we need God, therefore we are humble in His presence. And God arranged life this way. God's always expressed Himself this way. God's always defied expectation and culture and tradition in this way so that there could be no boasting in His presence. God planned the gospel of Christ to unfold in such a way that no human being could stand before Him and say, see what I did for you? See how I brought myself to you? Because of him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us 
wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord, not in himself, but in the Lord and all that's been supplied in Christ. We boast in him, in him alone. There is no room for boasting before God. This is why God blessed Ephraim. This is why God has always chosen the weak and the lowly, the despised, the rejected, the unexpected, so that there could be no room for boasting. And so now, what do we say? What do we say here in this room, looking each other in the eye? This is not a a production, a, a church production where you've been invited to come and witness some kind of splendor, some kind of excellence, and be wowed by it and leave impressed. This is a gathering of humble people who realize their dependence on a holy God. And here we are, in light of the truth, our need exposed, our humility inherent. The wisdom that we claim, scorned by the world. The power that we claim, all in Christ, rejected by the world. Our gospel counted as foolishness. Our calling is of dependence. We are not looking for the tallest, the brightest, the strongest, We're looking to be the most humble, the most dependent, the most willing to recognize and claim, own our weakness. The man who wrote this, Paul, had a great weakness, a weakness that he hated, that he prayed to God to deliver him from. Three times he pleaded with God to deliver him from this weakening agent that was sent to humble him. And three times God told him, my power is sufficient for you. My power is expressed in all of its perfection in your weakness. God wanted Paul to remain aware of his weakness, humble in his weakness, dependent on the Lord. That's the space we have to live in. Let me tell you, the times when you will find yourself most frustrated by God and His will and the outworking of His will, it's when you think you've got it. When you think you have some strength, some wisdom, some insight, that you're going to bring to God and you're going to lay before Him and say, see God, I've got it all figured out. I've put my plans before you. You can see how calculated, how thorough they are. And now I just need you to stamp them so that I'll have certainty that my plans will come to fruition. If you come to God this way, I can guarantee you, brothers and sisters, you will be signing up for a season of great frustration and disappointment. And you'll be disappointed in God. You'll be greatly frustrated and disappointed with God because He won't do the things that you thought you and God agreed on. What you'll be overlooking is that God, 
thinks your plans are funny. They're very cute and funny, and, and you did a good job of writing them all out and planning them all out and arranging everything and manipulating people so that they'd be all in the right positions so that everything you think you need and want will come to fruition. God thinks that's all very fun. But He is interested in establishing His plans for His glory, for your good. And those plans will not always be your plans. In fact, most of the time, you'll feel yourself just trying to keep up. Because you're weak. You're dependent. God is all-powerful, all-self-sufficient, all-wise, all-knowing. The ways of God are higher than our ways. The thoughts of God are higher than our thoughts. So the best way for us to follow God is to follow God. That's why we're called followers. God's not looking just to lead him. We need to follow him. Now, here's where the friction begins for us. If I can just try to really pastor your souls this morning, not just declare some kind of truth at you and then invite you to go home and just figure that out. If I could try to kind of pastor your souls this morning, let me say that I know about you what's true about me too. And that is that a position of follower is most undesirable to the human heart. We want to be out front because out front, you can make decisions. You can decide on directions, on paths. You can see the path ahead. You can plan far enough ahead that you feel comfortable with where this is all going. But when you're in the back, it's harder to see. It's harder to see around. It's harder to, you, you're not in the position of making decisions, of, of leading this thing. You're a follower, and I know, listen, I'm with you. I know how hard that is. I know. How hard was that for Joseph? How hard was that for Manasseh? As hard as it was for Esau. As hard as it was for Saul to be displaced. As hard as it was for the Pharisees to accept that Jesus was the Messiah and not some powerful military leader who would finally free them from Rome's oppression. As hard as it was for Nero to, re to realize that no matter how many Christians he killed, he could not stop the kingdom of God from expanding. As hard as it's ever been for any human being to realize all the power and wisdom that they're clutching so tightly to to control their own lives is an illusion. God, in all of His sovereignty and power and wisdom, is in control. He is the leader. He is the King of all the kings. He is the Lord of all the lords. Even those who are in positions of authority and power in a worldly sense are looking to Him. Whether they know it or not, whether they like it or not, He is sovereign. The more we embrace that, 
the more we learn to love that and enjoy that as followers of God, the more joy and peace and satisfaction we can walk in. But as long as we grip the illusion of power over our lives, the more we're going to struggle to have contentment and joy. The more we're going to see God as some kind of oppressor and as a father. So I want to call you to join me in letting go of our expectations, letting go of our plans, letting go of our lives, and being who God has called us to be, followers, humble, dependent, weak, and needy, looking to Him to supply, to satisfy. This is who we are. We need to embrace this identity, Christ followers. And I hope by embracing this, we can become a people who enjoy God to the glory of God more than we ever have before. But it's going to be a moment by moment kind of thing. Because from one moment to the next, you can go from, yeah, I know that's true, I know that's right, Lord, please help me, to, okay, uh, now back to real business, all right, because life is really happening. That's all really nice and theoretical and okay, you know, I get it. I, I understand the idea of we're followers and we're dependent, but look, I got to live my life. I got to live my life. I got to do my thing. And there's going to be the temptation every single day to abandon your dependence on God and rely on yourself, to forget that you're a follower and try to be the leader. And the kingdom of Christ is built on humble, dependent, weak people who have a powerful, all-sufficient, all-wise Savior. So let's look to Him for that. Let's pray. God, we thank You that You are not bound by our expectations. That You didn't look at Joseph who I know you loved so much and you used so powerfully, who was a mighty man after your heart, who had great insight and discernment about your will. He was able even to interpret decades of suffering and abandonment through your sovereignty and to worship you and love you and trust you. What a wonderful, mighty man of God. And yet you were willing to disappoint him in order to show yourself to be the only one in control, the only one with any real power, with any real wisdom, so that there could be no boasting. And now, Lord, that we have not only these patriarchs in our rearview mirror and, and not only the kings and the prophets and, and not, not only all of their prophecies, but we have 
the Lord Jesus himself coming as a fulfillment of all these things to establish all of these things to be the image of the invisible God revealing his character revealing your nature your wisdom your power in the preaching of the gospel thank you Lord that we have this knowledge from you that just like Joseph, we can deal with our disappointment by reinterpreting it all through who we know you to be. Lord, I imagine this morning that there are many gathered in this room who are even in the present scared of the things that you have done disappointed in the things that you've done, frustrated with you, that you haven't done something different, that you haven't given them a different path, you haven't worked out things in a way that they thought would be better. Wherever that fear and frustration and disappointment lies in each of our hearts, Lord, would you please help us? Help us to see that we are not some rare exception. That you have always been defying wisdom. The wisdom of the world. That you've always been shaming the powerful. You've always been doing the unexpected for the greater result, for the greater pleasure. Because you love us. Please, Lord, help us to be followers who trust you, who see our own weakness, and who depend on you in faith who are defined by the gospel, the grace found in Christ. Help in our time of need. A wisdom that goes beyond this world, a power that goes beyond this world, residing inside of us by your Holy Spirit. Help us to be spiritual. to be dependent, to be followers. Wherever there's resistance to you in that this morning, please, Lord, demolish it for our good. If we would fight against you, Lord, please fight harder. We know, Lord, that you Oppose the proud and give grace to the humble. You've repeated it so many times in your word. This refrain, this chorus, calling us to be followers and to receive your grace. Lord, please help us all. I, 
uh, it even occurs to me, Lord, that there could be people in this room right now who have been holding on to frustration for years, maybe for decades. That there's been this splinter in their mind, in their soul, in their spirit for years and years holding a grudge against you because you didn't accomplish their plans because you chose a different path for them. Lord, I ask you to begin a work in their hearts this morning that would heal them from that. That would teach them with your wisdom, working with your power, to trust you, to follow you, to accept your will, to embrace your will at any cost, to rest in you and find satisfaction in you because you are enough for us, Lord. You're our treasure. You're our prize. You are our richness. You are our glory. Help us, Lord, please. We ask in and for the name and the glory of Christ. Amen.